you're all going to go to heaven anyway. You get a life review and you get to feel how it felt interacting with you. So if you're mean to a whole bunch of people, you're going to feel their pain when you get up there. But it's not mm. a judgment. It's just a, how you did. This is A Joyful Rebellion, the podcast that explores that moment you realize the life and success you worked so hard to create didn't come with all the fulfillment you thought it would. I'm your host, James Walters, and I want you to be the author of your own story. Each week, I connect with people who inspire bold answers to the question, what do I do now to create a life I love? If you're ready to start answering that question for yourself, you're in the right place. So let's start a joyful rebellion. My guest today has an incredible story to share. Unlike most of us, Kathy McDaniel has experienced what it's like to die. Yeah, you heard that right. In 1999, while in a coma for over three weeks, she had a near-death experience that took her through hell and then heaven, only to discover that at the time, neither place wanted her, which is why she's back among us living folks and able to tell what she saw. Her book is called Misfit in Hell to Heaven Expat, and after I read it, I had a lot of follow-up questions. So let's jump right in. Thank you so much for being here. I have read your book. It's called Misfit in Hell to Heaven Expat. And I wanted to talk about your journey, but I'm really interested in talking about what happened next. I love the fact that in the book, you don't start where a lot of people think you might start, which is the trauma that happened right before you had these near-death experiences. It happens two generations back. Right. When you were writing the book, why was it you felt it was important to set the stage in that way leading up to your experience? I had the experience about 23 years ago. It took me 10 years to find the IANDS group. So nobody would listen to me. Oh. A lot of times I would sit down and just write out part of it, thinking that if I could just write it out, stick it in a drawer, go away, but it didn't. And then through a, a series of synchronicities, I found myself at an IONS meeting. And of course, they all, once a month, they would have people tell their story. And of course, there was angels and puppies and you know, all that stuff. I'm like, hmm. All right. <laughs> That's not happening to me. And so finally, some guy says, God, you're making faces all the time. What's going on? I says, I had a different experience. He says, oh, great. And I says, huh? And he says, yeah, we never get to hear about those about 20% of the time. People will have one of those, but nobody wants to talk about it. And I oh. said, gosh, there's a lot of shame in, involved in that. There's a lot of fear. It's just not dinner conversation. So they made me tell my story and in front of a group of people. And I'm a storyteller. So I got up there. The place was packed. They put out, hey, we got one of these people went to hell. So everybody showed up. <laughs> I'm thinking, oh, what is this? going to be embarrassing. I'm going to bomb out here. But by the time I got the end of the story, when we're just getting ready to get out of hell, and we did, they were with me on this journey. And so they they clapped and they were happy and oh, shoo, we got out. Oh, wow. And it was a great experience for me. So I was then empowered to be able to do this. But to go back to how I wrote the book, I was at an IONS conference. I finally went to one. And there was all these little booths set up out in the, you know, in the lobby. And there was a lady that had a little cardboard table that says, do you need to write a book? And then she had been working for a publishing company for ages and wanted to start her own. So I kept dodging her because I was, <laughs> you hear the voice when you get back and it's telling you stuff, suggestions, very oh, strong suggestions. Okay. And it keeps saying, you got to write a book. You got to write a book. You got to write a book. And I kept saying no. So at the end of the conference, she was packing up. And again, I, I went around her and she jumped in front of me 
and said, they said, you need to write a book. And I'm looking around for they, and it right. turns out she's medium. Oh. So they're, they're tapping her on the shoulder <laughs> saying, that one there, that one. So she badgered me into writing the book. And like you said earlier, I just wrote what happened. I got sick and this is what happened. And she says, that's just great, but that's only 10,000 words. And I said, yeah, she said, oh God, you're going to need at least 30,000 more. I said, I'm done. I don't have anything. <laughs> These are the she words. Said, I sat there at the computer and then I thought it started coming in. Maybe you just tell about your mom and dad and how you grew up. And I did that, came back to her and she said, I didn't say 30, I said 40,000. Back I went, back another generation. And now the spirits of my ancestors are getting into this. I would wake up in the middle of the night with somebody in my head saying, don't forget the time that Uncle George, you know, and I'd have to get up and write that down, put it in the book. So it got to the 50,000 words and I said, I'm done. And she says, it's perfect. You asked me earlier why, why my name was Rachel. And that's another story. When you write a memoir, a lot of these people are still alive and, and mm. you know, I guess soon they change everybody's names. That's really tricky. They'll never figure out who you're, they're talking about. But I thought I was really inspired by my grandma, Mary, who I was named after. And I decided to use her middle name, Rachel. Okay. It wasn't until the book was done and published that my dad said, no, her middle name was Rebecca. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, it's too late now. <laughs> we can't go you know, replacing so Rebecca 17,000 times. Yeah, there's always something that's going to go wrong. It's such a good book. And I know you've been on a lot of podcasts. You've done a lot of videos. And people are really wanting to focus on your journey through hell and you waking up in hell and then all of the things that happen. I would love to start where that part of the journey leaves off. And if people want to know more about it, they can certainly look you watch up there, video. watch a video and <laughs> right. hear the podcast. Well, or... This is great because I'm getting tired of telling that story. Right. Tell <laughs> yeah. What's funny, I, I laughed when you got to the part where you were just about to leave hell. You didn't realize it, but you did what I would consider a joyful rebellion. And it's all about all right. just not doing what you're supposed to do in order to be happy. but. There was that point in hell where you're in a cabin with all of these other women and there's a demon there. And I started to laugh because the way you were talking to this demon and having read the other chapters in the book, I, I realized you were less afraid of a demon than you were of the nuns in, in school. <laughs> That's a really good observation. <laughs> <laughs> because in the beginning of the book, when you were going through grade school and you were talking uh, about how the nuns were just strike fear in people, but by the time you, you, you got... You. Yeah, <laughs> I just laughed out loud when I made that connection. But in this scene we're talking about, you were in this cabin and you asked, gosh, I know this is hell, but why is it so miserable? And they told you it was Christmas Day. And yeah. what in that went through your mind to say, oh, it's Christmas Day. Here's what I'm going to do next. And that's where the misfit in hell comes in. The whole time I was down there, whenever they would tell me to do something and I don't like to be told what to do. <laughs> and it was heinous. I'd buck them. And I kept getting this. I kept getting kicked forward into another situation. And I'd had it by now. I was tired. I was disgusted. I could see this was not going to get any better because right. it was getting worse each time. And I wasn't ready to give up. I thought, no, I cannot despair. I remembered from my Catholic upbringing, despair is the unforgivable sin. Oh. Don't go there. You can't give up on God. And I thought, this is ticking me off and I'm going to 
give her what I I feel like I'm getting. So I know this will just irritate her really badly. So I just started singing. And boy, I'm telling you, her, she was walking away from me and, and her head whipped around. She already shut up. And then by then, the rest of the ladies are thinking, aha. And so they, they started joining in too. And you were singing Away in a Manger. Yeah, Away in a Manger. That's my favorite. And it's probably and frowned that. on in hell. Yeah, Those- they kicked me out. Thank God. Right. (laughs) It's interesting that from the time you woke up there in the book, it sounds like you went through a series of what seemed to me like tests or trials. And every time you either decided, okay, I'm going to take this on, or it seems like it just at the point when you decided I'm not going to despair, I'm just going to get through this, you would blink into another situation. Can you describe that for me? And did you put those things together? while you were there or did it just happen organically? I had no idea about what any of that meant for many years. Okay. It took me 20 years to write the book. And part of the catharsis of that was being able to really think through, wait a minute, what caused all this? Why did I go? And I wasn't that bad a person and blah, (laughs) blah, blah. And it took talking to other people. And finally it clicked that I manifested it. Mm. And I took all the horrible things, including the nuns, that happened (laughs) in my life and made my own hell. Because as a Catholic, I had been brought up believing that uh, even if I accepted Jesus and even if I did everything right, there was still going to be things that I would screw up on, have to go to purgatory and pay for it. And there was something that started in the Middle Ages called indulgences. People would buy these things to get 300 days off purgatory. It was in writing. You could just pay money and get it. This is back a long way. And so I bought that whole thing, hook, line, and sink. (laughs) And even though during my life, I thought about this a lot. I'd I'd do extra rosaries. I think you got 300 days off. That's almost a year, man. That's good. And then you could get extra novenas if you did. I I was going to daily mass. I was using my math skills to to arm me about And when I died, I was going to have this big bank account of days off purgatory. Either I miscalculated or (laughs) they changed the rules or something didn't happen. So I was really angry about that when I got back. Mm. So as I discovered... From talking to other people that God is all loving and all forgiving. And when I did that stint in heaven, there was no ifs, ands, or buts. God is love and a God would never condemn anybody. And I had to stop thinking about Jesus because it always bugged me. When we got around to Easter and and Mm -hmm. got Good Friday and this horrible thing happened to God's only beloved son, that didn't make sense to me. Mm. How is it an all-loving and all-forgiving God would do that to his only son? In the Bible, I love the prodigal son. The kid does everything to piss off his old man. And still, <laughs> when he comes back, he throws his arms around him and gives a party. Now, that's how God is. Yeah, That's how God really is. So I had a lot of, well, like I say, it took me 20 years to come to those conclusions. And that was joyful. That part of the book got me thinking about how you went through hell first. And then all of a sudden, after singing that 
away in a manger, you're in a very different place. And you wake up and you are seeing, you're seeing someone you recognize really well. And you just saw him in person. What about two or three months before? One month. One month. Okay. So he died one month. You were helping him through a lot of his, what you were hoping would be recovery. It didn't turn out that way, but now you're looking at him face to face. Did you know where you were? Yeah. (laughs) He looked great. Did he look like his 30 years ago version or? He was only 53 when he died. So he he looked, I didn't even know him when he was 35. When I knew him, he had graying hair and he was getting sparse and he looked great. I kept thinking, my, what happened? I, I, he, he was alive. And yeah. then I thought, I know this isn't, this isn't making sense, but I was in such a good mood from being in, in <laughs> all this joy and bliss and love. And I do remember him showing me something in a book and I couldn't remember what it was. And I know now that from all my time in Ions that you get a mind wipe sometimes when you come back uh-huh. and yeah, they'll show you. Like he said, you've got too much left to do. And I'm sure that book, which was I'm sure was the book of my life, was only half open. So it was like, no, you got a lot left to do. And I guess I said, no, it didn't matter what rationale they were pitching me. I was not buying it. So when he, we were always playing tricks on each other, always. And he'd always use my last name. I'd lose. And we'd always say, I'll put you for this. Mm. You got the last gotcha. He, he said, I can see this saying, I, I don't know. She's going to be a rough one to send back. And people are saying, I'm not going to tell her. Because <laughs> they're all looking at each other think, thinking she doesn't do anything anyone tells no, her to do. So She doesn't want to. No. And, and so for him, to, I tell him quite often, I'm going to get you. Yeah. I, I'll give him a big hug for it because I'm glad I came back. It was very obvious in the last at least three years since the book and and all the podcasts and stuff and the the remarks I get back and all the people that says, God, I really, I needed to hear your message. And I'm so glad you came. I'm so glad. Thousands of people. And Uh like I said, that one podcast I was on, it's made a million views. And it's incredible. That's when I got back and I was in the hospital and I've got this trach in my throat and I, I can't move. I was a mess. I was 86 pounds. I heard the doctor say, we don't know how brain damaged she's going to be. She won't be able to work. She might be able to drive a car. She's going to have to live with somebody. And I'm thinking, you got too much left to do. That isn't funny. Why didn't I get to just stay there? I was depressed, very depressed Mm. for quite a while. And it wasn't until getting to Ions 10 years later. Oh, wow. He says, yeah, it was a long time to be alone with those thoughts. And Being afraid if I died, I'd go to purgatory again. Yeah. It was bad. So to finally find people that say, good for you, you were brave and you're a brave soul and you brought back this wonderful message and thank God for you. And that changed everything around that fear and the shame just went away. And I've uh, had this on IONS. I have a sharing group now. They've got all kinds of sharing groups, but they had nothing for the distressing and the ears. So I started a a sharing group. We do that once a month and we started with one person showing up and we now got about 10 or 15 people that come and and several of them have said, I have never told my story to anybody. Can I tell it to you guys? Because they feel safe with you because you share the experience. Yeah, I've got a, I've got a quote. Where is it? Anyway, it says pretty much shame and fear disappear when stories are told in safe places. Mm. That's and that true. was just like, 
bing, when I saw that thing, I thought it is, it's amazing. So this is what I do is also to, to reach those people who are suffering and think they're the only ones. It's been a really good life. Because once you got out of the hospital, there was a long recovery. You had to learn how to walk again. You had to gain your weight back. You had to gain your muscle back. There was a lot. You were in the hospital for almost a month, but three weeks of that at least was in a medically induced coma, right? So there was no movement. And that three weeks cost you, it was almost a year of recovery, right? Oh, yeah. 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 Getting and you had to that. prove you could take some steps before they would let you get to the next level. I mean, it was grueling. It, it was, was a chore. And, and yeah. thank God for my family. They were so supportive. But when they had to leave, that was traumatic. But mm. then Del I had been dating, mm. asked me to marry him, and it worked out really well. Later on, I saved his life. I noticed in the book, in the course of the book, you get a lot of marriage proposals. I, I thought that was, <laughs> I noticed that too. I counted at least four. So, <laughs> oh, it'll be more than that. Yeah, it was, it was, I was more married than married three. Yeah, I'm not a perfect person, and my life has not been perfect. But no, but you've got I'm some human, sort of, you know, you've got some sort of energy that, that makes people just on the first date say, I think we should spend forever together. <laughs> yeah, well, that's a kind way of putting it. I'm blessed with a lot of friends and learning so much in IONS from all these, there's thousands and thousands of people all over the world and more and more coming forward with these experiences. But what does IONS stand for? The International Association of Near-Death Studies. Okay. It started 30 years ago in Seattle, which is the meetings that I go to. And there's doctors and lawyers and Indian chiefs, that people that are supposedly the smart guys that have had these experiences. And I love it when the atheists have these experiences. <laughs> <laughs> they come back. The prize. Yeah. Oh, by the way, science is this close from proving that consciousness exists. And so you learn that you plan your life. We're all souls and that's part of God and God's part of everything. That's dark matter and everything is energy is mm. God. It's not a guy. It's not an entity. It's just everything. And okay. uh, the people that go up there, is, eternity is a huge place. And when you go up there, you get to see this little tiny puzzle piece of it, and then you bring it back and share it. So it's taken thousands of people to put together even things that two people have seen. Or It's just amazing how wonderful and varied and eternal it is when you're there. It makes sense, but you get back and you can't explain it. It's like this. Yeah. It's always now. There's no sun coming up. You don't have a clock. It's just like a being. I don't know if you've ever been in a like a casino. You know, but they, <laughs> no windows. You go no in clocks. there at one thirty in the afternoon, and you oh, you think oh, gee, it's probably time for dinner, and it's four in the morning. Mm -hmm. you, you have no idea. It's mm -hmm. just always now. There's always something going on, and and you don't think about it. So it's a whole different. Thing, but when you come back and you have that understanding, knowing, mm -hmm. and you don't have a faith anymore, it changes everything. You are a different soul. Yeah. And that's where I wanted to start. I know we've talked a lot about the backstory, but I wanted to start the conversation with something we talk about a lot on this podcast is programming, whether that's childhood programming, where you grew up with the family you grew up, what religion you were part of. We were given certain rules and things to follow, guidelines. You grew up Catholic, and so there are a lot of 
guidelines and rules there. And what I'd love to talk about is not just in that respect, but the way you were raised, what things changed immediately as soon as you came back and, and you thought to yourself, I just don't think that way anymore. Or I know you talked a little bit about the guilt and shame, but you also said that when you came back, you were depressed. You had to sort things out. You had to figure out, okay, what did I just experience? Was it real? How do I move forward? And what things have I left undone I need to get working on? But I'd love to start with how your mindset changed. <laughs> your brain blew up because nothing's the same and you question everything. And I finally went to a therapist, the lady I'd been seeing, and she listened to the whole story. I, I, she was the first person to hear it. She got to the end. She says, I am going to have to put PTSD on your charge. And I, I said, think and? So. Yeah. She says, I have no idea how to help you. Oh, whoa, really? Thank you. That costs $50. Oh, PTSD. That's a huge thing. And I think that happens to anybody that goes over there, whether they have a wonderful experience or not. It's bizarre to be out of your body. It's incredible to experience. There's such trouble talking about it because we don't have those words in our vocabulary. You just get blocked. You can't talk about it. I think when it really, really hit me that I had changed was when I got enough energy to go back to church and mm -hmm. go back to mass and to listen to the sermon and to sing the songs and say my comfortable prayers. And all of a sudden I'm thinking, whoa, that's not true. Oh, mm -hmm. that's not right. And I couldn't say simple things like the, the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who sits at the right hand of the Father. Wait a minute, there's no, there was no thrones, there was no crowns, there was no, I didn't see Jesus. Some people see Jesus, some people see Buddha, some people see, I believe now there's a Christ consciousness. God is always trying to talk to us. But when at the end it says, and I look forward to the resurrection of the dead and life in the world to come. Spoiler alert, there's no bodies in heaven. But it started crumbling. Oh. oh these things. I couldn't say the prayers. I felt like me and God were chuckling. Mm. He was saying, yeah, you know what I'm going through now. <laughs> <laughs> there is a sense of humor in heaven. If you, That's one of our biggest gifts is our sense of humor. In hell, no. None. No, nobody. not appreciated. And that's yeah. the worst thing about hell, or my hell anyway, because I have a sense of humor. But what else happened? How did your relationships change with people? When I woke up, there is my mom who says, oh, Kathy, we had a prayer circle going around the globe. We brought you back. And I thought, my <laughs> hands on that woman, it's her fault. They didn't understand that. Why isn't she happy to be back? Mm. And then mom said, when I was talking about this bad experience, she said, Kathy, what did you do that sent you to hell? There's the shame. Know that side of you. And it's, wait a minute. That's when you learn to shut up. Mm, right. They don't get it. You're a cuckoo. It was just the drugs. It was just, no, I'm sorry. I, or, or a dream. It's 23 years later. It's right there. Like what people say is it's realer than this dimension. In mm. this dimension, you dream, you have, you get dementia. You, there's all kinds of things are unreal here. Mm. And when you come back, you understand it's all unreal <laughs> here. Really? It's. We decide to come down to, I don't know all the details, but what I'm told is you pick your life, things you want to learn. I obviously wanted to learn empathy. 
I had a lot of bad things happen to me. And mm. But out of that came when I would find somebody, hear somebody saying that happened to them, I could say, I'm so sorry. Mm. I know how you feel. Mm. And that person would just glom on to me because a lot of people say, oh, I just know how you feel. Well, no, you don't know how they feel unless you've actually had a baby die, mm-hmm. unless you've been raped, unless all these things have happened to you. You don't know how. Once you did recover, you went through that year and plus, and you were starting to feel normal, like yourself again, physically. The next time you started meeting new people, because it sounds like you still hadn't figured out what happened yet. You still weren't used to it. How did your next brand new relationships go with the new perspective you had? Actually, I met somebody while I was taking care of my friend. Okay. And we had been dating for a couple months, several months, I think. And then I got sick when I was visiting Southern California with him. He was a singer. So anyway, yeah, we got engaged in the hospital and then took about a year to get married. And it was fine and dandy for a long time because I just moved there. I moved from California to to help my friend. And now I was in Washington State. I didn't know a soul. So I got to meet his family and and he's back into being a social being. A lot of time to think, which wasn't good. That was bad. Yeah. Then I started having strange things happen. About three months later, I had this dream of a really good friend of mine in California. He had cancer for years and then he went into remission. And the last time I saw him, he was going into the doctor for his seven-year checkup. And we were just really good friends. He loved to garden and Mm. we went on fishing tours together. His, I was dating his best friend at the time. But anyway, I had this dream of him, a very real dream of seeing him in this beautiful garden. He was showing me around the garden and it was the heaven feeling. It always makes me emotional because it's so big. It was heaven feeling. And so when I woke up, my, my husband tapped me on the back because he says, you're making funny noises and zoom, I'm out. And I thought, oh no. I said, no, I was trying to hang on to it. And two days later, my friend called. She also knew this man and said that he died two days before. Wow. So he was coming no, to show you the garden. he to say goodbye. And that was the first time I thought, wow, I've got some residual. This is going to be interesting. And again, the voice becomes a, a big deal. You start hearing what seems a lot of times you think it's your conscience. When you're making decisions, sometimes you'll hear yourself say, ah, that's not a good idea. Or yeah, it probably gets really loud uh, when you're we're doing. And that's this voice started saying, to go to a certain place. And I'd go to this place and I'd get this clue to go to another place and eventually ended up at the IONS meeting. Oh, and okay. being told I had to tell my story and eventually being told I had to write the book. It's just, I accept it now. And yeah. it's lovely, it's company. And like my dad was the only one that was listened to my story. He didn't hear the whole story, but he read the book. Okay, He wrote this, the first chapter of the book. He was a pilot in World War II. He was an atheist. There are no atheists and foxholes, so to speak. And so he uh-huh. he became a believer <laughs> in the war. And so he always said, oh, I wish I'd had time to write my memoirs about being in World War II and being a fighter pilot. And I says, well, write the first chapter of my book that way. Well, co-author, how's that? And he did. And so we were very close and he died a couple of years back from COVID. He was 97. And he was, you know, very interested in death, of course, and what was going to be on the other side. And I kept telling him, oh, 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 I'm so jealous. 
<laughs> wow. I, I, let's save me a place, man. When we get up there, let's just go fly through the universe. I want to know what, what happens in a black hole. So when he died, I felt him with me and he even wrote me an email. I've got it on the wall. Yeah. Wow. My mom's got dementia and she's really forgetting things. One time I was visiting, I try and go every month or every other month to California and visit. And we were arguing about something. My niece, she says, your name is Kathy McDaniel. I says, no, it's Mary Kathleen. I don't like the name Mary. I said, I know that was your mother-in-law's name and you guys did not get along. He's, she's never wanted to name it, never. <laughs> I says, okay, fine. So I got home and two days later, here comes an email from my dad. That's his, his email address. Of course, he's been dead for several years. And I thought, well, that's strange. And I thought it must be a spam thing, how they steal people's. But the tagline was Mary, M-A-R-Y. He's oh. the one that named me Mary. And I thought, oh, I have to open it. And I did. And all it said was Mary. Now, my email address is Kathy McDaniel, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. So even if somebody stole that and wanted to get in, why would they put Mary on? And the other thing weird about that is I printed it out. And I've got a wall behind me here, behind my, not that way, this way, with all kinds of stuff on it. And I was going to put it up on the wall with, I had some tape sitting by. And when I went to put it up on the wall, it came out of my hands and stuck to the wall. Whoa. No tape, no nothing. That's a, it's wood. And so if I tried that with other pieces of paper and they just fall to the ground, it stayed that way for a whole day. Next day I got up, it's still there. Huh. And it's with his picture. I've got a big picture of him there. Yeah. And I was afraid it was going to fall off. Like, you have a little faith. I finally put a piece of tape on there. But it's still <laughs> stuck on the sides, whereas all the other papers I have on here, how they bend down. Yeah, they curl yeah. out. So there's circles. If you just, I, I tell people that have had people pass, they're still there. Mm -hmm. They're right there. Just talk to them. He finds things for me. I lose my keys. I lose my glasses. I'm hysterical. And if I'm quiet, I sit down. I see it in my head and I go see it. Go get it. Well, jacket pocket, <laughs> jacket pocket. <laughs> yeah, it's that's the coolest thing about having that experience, being there and coming back. You're much more in tune yeah. with the other side. You're not so anchored in this little place. Yeah. So how have your attitudes changed? It sounds like they've changed a lot for when you see or when you experience loss of a family member, of a friend now, as opposed to 20 years ago, and you say you almost, you're jealous. You Jealous. Yeah. And what do you tell <laughs> them? Jealous. And are they comforted when you tell them of your experience and say, hey, you're about to go to a really great party? Yes. It's very common for people that come back to go work for hospice. Okay. I wanted to be around people that were going to die. I was so jealous. I just wanted to, I just felt so called. And one time I was there and I would sit at the front desk and, and take people to see their loved ones and all that. And it's called Hospice House. It's a great place. Then they asked me to go, would you please go in room 404, whatever it was, Mr. So-and-so keeps getting out of bed. And he's a little guy, but he keeps jumping out of bed. We're afraid he's going to hurt himself. We took the mattress off, the, put it on the floor, but we don't know what's wrong. So I went in there, I tiptoed in, and he's looking at me, and I'm looking at him. <laughs> and he can't talk, and he's just looking at me, and I just rocking on my heels, thinking I'm something to talk about. And I says, okay, I just want to tell you that I am jealous of you, because you get to go to heaven soon. And I just got back from there, and that is totally awesome. You're going to have such a good time. You're going to have all your friends and your family there. You're going to be, you're going to be well. You're going to be young, and you're... I, yeah, I'm just jealous. 
and boy, his eyes got all big and he really listening there. And then he was still, he started, he was thinking, but he was getting itchy like he was going to get out of bed. And I thought, uh-oh. So I looked around and I saw that his glass was empty by his bedside yeah. and the pitcher was empty and the straw was sticking out of there. And I remember not being able to talk mm. in the hospital. And, and I said, oh my God, I says, are you thirsty? And he's blinking his eyes like crazy. And uh, that's what all I could do. Uh. And I said, oh my God. I said, so I run, I said, stay right there. Don't you move a muscle. And I ran down the hall to the nurse's station. And I said, can Mr. Jones have water? Oh yeah. I says, okay. So I ran back down the hall. Got, I, said, I told him, just a minute, I'll be right back. So I went to the bathroom. I got him a glass of water and I'm sitting there and he, he can't drink. He's laying down. So I thought, screw it. So I got in bed with him and I brought his head up on my lap <laughs> like, you're feeding a baby. And then I put the, the straw up there and he drank that whole thing down. Oh my and gosh. Said, oh, if nothing, you're so thirsty and you, you couldn't say anything. So now he's relaxed and he's, he's smiling and he's just laying there. He's still not saying anything. And I said, yeah, I, I'm, I'm glad I could help you. And oh gosh, it's time for me to go home. But let me tell you that you're going to be so happy. And uh, he he was just smiling. And mm. when I left, I you know, the nerves came in and says, what's happening here with Mr. Jones? I said, well, he was thirsty for one thing. And we had a little talk, uh, you know, another time the lady and her husband were there. Their mom, Her mom was dying and she's, oh, I'll never see my mother again. I can't stand it. This is breaking my heart. And I kind of sidled up to her. I says, oh yeah, you will. <laughs> and she says, what do you mean? And I just, because I've been to heaven and I came back and you're going to see her again. She's going to look young. She's going to be happy. And she turned to her husband and said, honey, I'm going to see mom again. This lady went to heaven and she knows. That. Wow. That's what started really turning me around with poor me. Oh, uh, okay. Helping this others. Is cool. This is cool. So yeah. And the other thing I was told when I got back was to be loving, kind, merciful, forgiving, encouraging, mm. grateful, non-judgmental, and useful. Mm. I can't remember where my keys are, but that's emblazoned in my soul. And it's loving and kind. Just tell people, if you can just be loving and kind, you're all going to go to heaven anyway. You get a life review and you get to feel how it felt interacting with you. So if you're mean to a whole bunch of people, you're going to feel their pain when you get up there. But it's not mm. a judgment. It's just a, how you did. But there's nothing that? to be afraid of. Wow. And I would love to go back. You've got a quote in your book and you mentioned it just a little while back, but you say that souls choose their path. They choose why they want to come here, what they want to learn. Can you expand on that? Well, that's just what I'm told. I, I wasn't there long enough to get a life review or any information like that. There's people that spend a lot of time in there, up there, but they all come back. The ones that had the life review all come back with the same story that you've got some guardians or guardian angels or people, not people, spirits with you. And then you watch this movie and it's from the time you're conceived to the time you die. And wow, it's really interesting on a big screen. And it's really, and you're, yeah, you're like, oh, I forgot about that. Oh yeah, that was fun. They go through the whole thing and then they turn it around and then you get to experience that as if you were the person, like I would experience how it would be being you. And again, if I'm kind to you, I will feel hmm, that glow of, oh, that felt good. If I'm mean to you, you know, if I, bumped in your car and then didn't leave a note and left and you came out like oh, my brand new car uh, i'd feel that so mm. that's not a judgment that's karma you right. get to feel what you put out and it's for you to learn oh okay i learned that lesson really well this i can use some more fun we have a chance to come back and do it again and not just here this is just one little planet 
in one little universe, there's a lot of places out there that you can choose to go to. I've been told that Earth is the toughest gig, that the only the really brave souls come down here. This is a very oh. dense planet. Just look around. We're used to it. This is not the norm. This oh. is a tough gig. But eventually, they've been told that enough people are going to awaken and get it, that while we're here, then the loving and kind thing will kick in. But right now, it doesn't look likely for a while. Yeah. So I don't see myself coming back here. Okay, so that leads me to the question. (laughs) Right. That leads me to the question. I don't watch the news much on purpose, but sometimes I'm out places and I'll see it like a restaurant or airport, something like that. And I just get reminded how much heaviness there is going on in the world. So how has your thinking changed when you see those kinds of things with people just not being great to each other? I'm like you. I don't watch the news. I try not to. I try and stay away from movies that have killing and torture and all that stuff. It's it's not good to bring that into your soul. It's mm. just not. It's poison. And I, I prefer, I'll watch the animal planet before I watch the news. <laughs> but I, I send out love and energy to people and to the world, but know that it's their plan. They chose it. I never like to use the word should. It's possible they're supposed to be learning something, but they're not. Ah, okay. How to be loving, kind, forgive, merciful, all that. They've got the chance to do that, but they're passing. And my guess is they'll have to come back and do it again. Oh, wow. Okay. Kathy, thank you so much. I love this conversation. Your story is amazing. And if someone wants to experience it for themselves, how can they connect with your work? The book is Misfit and Hell, The Heaven Expat. And that's on Amazon or it's a noble or wherever you get your books. And then I've got a website with that same address. And there's a spot where you can send me an email or what if you want to ask a question. That's fantastic. Thank you so much for taking the time to share your story, your insight. That's what I was so excited to talk about is let's move forward from the story and find out how the last 10 years, and especially it sounds like the last three years have just been amazing for you, even though you'd maybe rather be somewhere else, I get. No, I wouldn't. (laughs) Okay. No, because I know that when I get my work done, I'll be out of here. So I'd I'd rather stick to getting my work done. Are you just trying to blaze through that to-do list to get where you want to be? Yeah. Yeah. I I feel blessed to have this mission. Yeah. I really do because it's been very rewarding. And you're helping a lot of people. That makes you happy. You feel like you have a purpose. I think everybody's got a purpose. And once you find it and start putting your energy into it, it's magic. That is a lot of what this podcast is all about. So thank you for sharing your purpose. And I think it will reach a lot of people and at least get them thinking. That is always my biggest goal, get them thinking, because thinking leads to action and action can lead to just having a really fulfilling and joyful life and hopefully doing that for other people. Exactly. Thanks, James. Thank you so much, Kathy. Take care. Bye. Thank you so much for joining me today and be sure to come back next week. Oh, and can I ask a favor? I love connecting with people who have either led their own joyful rebellion or professionals who help others through that journey. So if you know someone like that, there's a big yellow button on the homepage at ajoyfulrebellion.com. I'd really appreciate you reaching out with a suggestion or introduction. Thanks again, and I'll see you back here next week.